Welcome to the Medicine Grand Rounders podcast. My name is Dick Wardroff, and I'm a MedPeds clinician educator, program director, and hospitalist at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. We are so proud to host another great episode of our podcast, cleverly titled to give you all that you may expect out of a high-quality, evidence-based Medicine Grand Rounds, right at your fingertips and right in your ears. Our program is funded by a grant from the Cleveland Clinic Education Institute, but the views expressed herein are not necessarily the views of Cleveland Clinic. The format of our production is very simple. We host world-class clinical experts in a variety of specialties of internal medicine and put forth important and high-impact clinical questions related to the practice of general medicine with impact for providers at all levels in medical training, including students, APPs, practicing generalists, and seasoned veterans alike. Today's topic, all things shock. I am proud to introduce Dr. Matthew Shuba, staff in the Department of Critical Care Medicine and an Associate Program Director in the Critical Care Medicine Fellowship Program within the Integrated Hospital Care Institute at Cleveland Clinic. We are also happy to have our resident expert, Dr. Simran Ganerawal, one of our fabulous PGY3 residents, as well as my co-host, Dr. Arjun Chatterjee, also of the Cleveland Clinic Internal Medicine Residency. To our honored guests, please take a moment to say hi, tell us about yourselves, and start right in on the questions. Dick, thanks so much for having me today, uh, Arjun, too, uh, and thanks to Simran for the in invitation. Uh, there's not a lot to say about me that uh, wasn't covered in my original introduction, uh, except also like Dick, I, I'm MedPeds trained, which is kind of neat. So we have two MedPeds people on, on the call. Um, but I'm uh, really enthusiastic about talking about shock. I run our shock program within our medical ICU, and, and I'm responsible for hemodynamics education within the fellowship program. Hi, everyone. Uh, Dr. Wardrop and Arjun, thanks for inviting me to do this. Matt, thanks for agreeing to join. Super excited about this episode and everything it's going to teach everyone. Thank you, Simran and Dr. Shuba, for joining. Always excited to learn from you, Dr. Shuba. So before we start talking about evaluating shock, I think it's important to define what we mean by shock. What is the definition you use, Matt? That's a surprisingly good question because it's something that comes up very often. And, and if you ask five different people, you might get six different answers. I think the best way to define it is it is a widespread reduction of effective tissue perfusion. So notice that that definition did not include hypotension in any way, shape, or form. Now, hypotension is often present in shock, and it's usually a reflection of loss of our uh, intrinsic autoregulatory mechanisms, but hypotension itself does not need to be present. And just to impress that fact, patients who are normotensive and have signs of shock or, again, a reduction in effective tissue perfusion actually have worse outcomes than patients that are, frankly, hypotensive. That's so interesting. I wonder how much of that mortality is driven by the lack of recognition of shock. To help discuss shock, let's start off with a case. A 70-year-old female is admitted to the regular nursing floor for altered mental status with a past medical history notable for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and EF of 30%, DVT on rivaroxaban, ESRD on IHD via tunnel dialysis catheter. Her admission labs show a leukocytosis of 13,000. You get called to transfer this patient to the ICU for an elevated lactate of 3.5. Off the bat, what are you thinking of and what additional information do you want? Yeah, this is a, a great example of a typical case that, that we'll often get called for. So in the first place, let's return to the definition that I gave, uh, a widespread reduction in effective tissue perfusion. So already I have some signs that this patient may have ineffective tissue perfusion because there's encephalopathy present. 
The way that we define uh, shock within our medical ICU and within our fellowship program is using a simple acronym called the BUS, brain, urine, and skin. So that's uh, looking for encephalopathy, looking for decreased urine output uh, or acute kidney injury, and then looking for altered skin perfusion. Uh, so we already have one of those criteria present, so I'm already starting to get worried about this patient. Uh, we obviously can't use urine output criteria in this patient with end-stage renal disease. Um, so the next thing I'd be interested in knowing about is the cap refill. Uh, and I think before we get into that, I, I want to just talk about why that I think is a lot more valuable than we give it credit for. Um, capillary refill time is something that gives us an impression of whether or not there is a tissue perfusion uh, crisis happening. And the, the reason that I say that is there's a lot of areas of the body that have autoregulatory uh, blood flow capabilities like the brain and the kidneys. The skin has no autoregulatory capability whatsoever, so it's kind of the canary in the coal mine for this problem. So if there's malperfusion somewhere else, you'll often see it in the skin as well. Uh, it's important to do this in a standardized way. I think the way that we're taught in medical school is different than the way that it's taught in nursing school, and I think it's best that we all kind of do it the same way. So the way that I advocate for screening for this in, um, in any patient in the hospital is using the method that was used in the Andromeda shock trial. And in that trial, uh, which compared capillary refill-based uh, resuscitation strategy to a lactate-based uh, resuscitation strategy, uh, they actually applied uh, pressure to the distal uh, part of the fingertip, uh, not the nail side, the, the opposite side, uh, for 10 seconds using a glass microscope slide to make sure the, the skin was completely blanched, and then they released it and they actually measured the time with a timer. Now, we don't have to use microscope slides to do that, but I think the idea of doing it with firm pressure for 10 seconds is a good way to standardize it. And then I think you, you know, we all have iPhones and, and uh, watches and things that we can measure time with pretty easily. So I try to do it in a standardized way so it's repeatable. So that's my little spiel about cap refill because I think everyone should should uh, pay more attention to it than, than we typically do. So just notice I, I just said it means a perfusion crisis. It doesn't mean that there's cardiogenic shock. It doesn't tell you the type of shock. It doesn't tell you that they're hypovolemic. It just tells you a perfusion crisis is present. So now we've covered the bus. Uh, a couple other things I'd like to know about this patient is, are there any other uh, acute organ failures present, uh, you know, hepatic dysfunction or, or things of that nature? And then finally, in this case, this patient could literally have just about any cause of shock. So I have a patient that is on uh, a DOAC for a DVT uh, that increases the risk of hemorrhagic shock in this case. It may just not be clinically evident yet, or maybe they're not taking it and they have a pulmonary embolism. Um, the most likely things in this case, though, that, that I'm particularly worried about are uh, infection, particularly in a patient on dialysis with a, a tunnel dialysis catheter, uh, and then the possibility here of worsening heart failure or, car you know, heart failure-related cardiogenic shock is, is a possibility with this baseline EF of 30%. And then we didn't, we haven't talked yet about whether this patient has uh, been uh, adherent to the dialysis schedule, and if not, uh, uremic pericarditis and even possibly uremic uh, tamponade is possible. So, this patient could literally have any cause of shock, um, anything from distributive, cardiogenic, hypovolemic, or obstructive. That's great. Thank you for outlining that broad differential. I'll have to start carrying my microscope slides around. Um, a little bit more information on the patient, their vitals. So their systolic blood pressure was 100, diastolic 45, giving you a map of approximately 65. They were mildly tachycardic with a heart rate of 105, and their oxygen saturation was 94% on 3 liters nasal cannula, with a respiratory rate of 26. Moving on to a little bit more of the exam, they were cool to touch and their capillary refill time was 6 to 7 seconds. 
They were learned oriented only to themselves from a baseline of being oriented to themselves, the time and the place. The superstar resident on the floor sent a venous blood gas from the tunnel dialysis catheter, and it had a central venous oxygen saturation of 72. How does this narrow that differential you mentioned? Well, this is great, and I really appreciate that the resident actually drew a gas from a central lane, which was already in place. Because you know that's not often that you have those uh, when you're on the on a nursing floor or in the emergency department, unless it was placed emergently. Um, so overall, I'm getting the impression this patient's pretty sick. Um, and again, the, a perfusion crisis is present. They're encephalopathic and they have a uh, prolonged capillary refill time. So this, to me, is a medical emergency, and I, and I hope that we can take one thing away from this episode is that shock should be regarded as a medical emergency, even though we don't have metrics like door to balloon time. So what does this oxygen saturation from the central line of 72 mean in this case? I'm not really sure yet. Um, this doesn't 100% clarify the etiology. Um, I try not to make any assumptions uh, when I'm taking care of a patient with shock off of any one single value, in this case, the central venous oxygen saturation. But there's still value in knowing this as a data point. Um, this might make uh, situations in which a low stroke volume is present, like cardiogenic shock, less likely, but we certainly need more data. Following on from what you said at the end, I wanted to know what your thoughts were, were on comparing central venous oxygen saturations to a true mixed venous oxygen saturation from a pulmonary artery catheter. Great question. Both of these uh labs try to get at kind of the same question. We're trying to look at the physiology of oxygen delivery versus oxygen extraction or that DO2 to BO2 relationship. And this is something that was probably a little overemphasized over, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And and now it's kind of, it's, it's influence and in the way that we take care of patients with shock is a little bit moderated, but it still has value. Um, so uh, in terms of considering the difference between these two values, the central venous versus the mixed venous, obviously a mixed venous is also going to have contribution of return of venous blood from the lower body and the coronary sinus. So these values are not interchangeable. And in fact, we know that there's actually poor agreement and limited correlation between these two values. Um, they both though can be falsely high in the setting of uh, states like septic shock where uh, oxygen utilization at the tissue level is impaired, either due to mitochondrial dysfunction or microvascular shunting. But sometimes the extremes are still useful. If you have a value of 30 or a value of 80, this might be helpful, but again, no one data point will make a diagnosis for you. That makes sense. Do you think she needs to come to the ICU even though she was normotensive? Her blood pressure was 100 over 45. Yeah, and I, again, I, I think to, to emphasize the, um, the definition of shock, there is very evidently a perfusion crisis uh, at play here. She's meeting two out of the three of the bus criteria uh, the only two that she can meet, actually, um, and uh, and things are not going in the right direction. This is a good uh, time to talk about, you know, calling the ICU. Sometimes people, depending on the environment you work in, people may be afraid to call the ICU because they think they're going to, you know, dismiss your concerns if the patient doesn't immediately need to be intubated or, you know, need to be put on two pressers immediately um, or about to code. And I think if you have worry about somebody that you think even just needs more monitoring, it's a good time to call just to ask for a consult. And the answer might be, you know, you're doing what you need to be doing. But in this case, I think this patient needs to come to the unit. Uh, this patient needs to be in a closer monitor environment. And there's a possibility even that this blood pressure may not be accurate. Uh, and, you know, there are some limitations to what we can obtain with the uh, automated blood pressure cuffs. And some patients, when the, the blood pressure doesn't reflect the clinical scenario, it would be important to consider whether that's accurate. Um, but 
regardless of the number, the patient is in shock and, and needs a higher level of care. So Dr. Shuba, to put together a schema for undifferentiated shock for us learners, could you walk through how you would approach a patient in shock? So anytime you have a patient in shock, they need to be approached relatively the same way. And that doesn't matter if you're working in the emergency department, the regular nursing floor, cardiac ICU, medical ICU, neurologic ICU. You have to be systematic because you don't want to fall into traps to thinking anybody that comes to the medical ICU has sepsis and anybody that comes to the cardiac ICU has cardiogenic shock. So what I usually ask people to do is think of the shock tables that you learned in medical school and try to recreate them with clinical data. Um, so, you know, you can picture these tables that give you the SVR and the right atrial pressure and left atrial pressure and uh, the cardiac output. We, we try to simplify that framework for our fellows into uh, this three data points we call tone filling and flow. And these are called different things in different places, but this is the framework we use. And we use tone first because uh, tone uh, would uh, be defined as uh, an estimation of what the systemic vascular resistance is. And the reason I choose this one first is because I want I want my fellows to, to touch the patient. Uh, it's the best way to start an evaluation. It's one of the few things I think that has super high value in terms of physical exam and the ICU. So this is the way that you might assess uh, systemic vascular resistance in a, in a patient that you think might be in shock would be just kind of a, a gross assessment of the skin temperature and then the diastolic blood pressure. A lower diastolic blood pressure would be more consistent with the distributive process where a higher diastolic process would be associated with other causes of shock. Filling pressure estimation seems difficult. You might say, oh, I need a PA catheter to do that. Um, but this is another place where your physical exam can be very useful. If you can measure jugular venous distension, you can estimate the right atrial pressure. Similarly, if you're facile with ultrasound, IBC uh, size and collapse can be useful. And then finally, in this case, you know, I'm bringing this patient to the ICU. They have a tunnel dialysis catheter that has two lumens. I can transduce the CVP right off of that device, and it should be fairly accurate. Finally, uh, estimation of flow, um, so I've, I've gone through tone and filling, and now the last piece is flow, would be an estimation of cardiac output, but also how adequate it is, because there is no cardiac output number that is normal for every situation. Uh, a normal cardiac index is generally regarded as between 2.5 and 4, but for different patients and different circumstances, that may be you know, too low. So the uh, central venous oxygen saturation uh, or mixed venous oxygen saturation, again, has some value. You don't want to use it in isolation. There are ways that we can use echocardiography to actually measure surrogates or stroke volume. Uh, the main surrogate that we use is something called uh, left ventricular outflow tract velocity time integral or LBOT VTI. Describing that is beyond the scope of this podcast, but in case you hear this terminology when they're in, you are in a unit, you know that you're trying to assess the stroke volume. If you had a PA catheter, you can uh, assess uh, cardiac output with thermodilution as well. So there's a lot of different ways you can come across uh, or can get at these issues. And depending on which uh, setting you're in will depend on which of these you have available to you. And, you know, you have a blood pressure cuff in most of the places you work. You don't have invasive hemodynamics in some of the others. Um, so that's the diagnostic framework that you need to think about when you have a patient with shock. But there's also a therapeutic framework, and it works very much the same. Um, but what you need to start to do in that case is most of the things that you're doing are going to manipulate uh, cardiac output to some extent. So you should try to recreate a Starling curve and where you think the position might be on it, at least in your mind. Um, this is useful um, to say, I'm starting with this filling pressure and this cardiac output or my, my estimation of it, and then I, I made an intervention, and then how did the patient change? And these are things you're mostly going to probably do in the ICU just because the tools are available to do it. But that doesn't mean everybody needs this one. Like I said, there's many ways that you can try to assess the relationship of filling pressures to cardiac output, and that can help you tell what effect you're having on, on the patient. That being said, remember at the, at the beginning we said that shock 
is a uh, perfusion deficit, a tissue perfusion deficit. So you want to, after you've made an intervention, you want to start to go back and try to uh, reassess those perfusion parameters, those bus parameters to see if they're improving. Matt, how do you usually tie in POCUS to assess some of these parameters? I know you mentioned a little bit about echo VTI and uh, assessment of the IVC. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So if you think back to our initial differential diagnosis of this patient, we thought this patient essentially could have any problem, uh, any any major shock diagnosis could be hemorrhage, could be obstructive shock, could be cardiogenic or distributive. So um, I think point of care, if you're going to take care of patients in shock, uh, no matter what the setting is, it's very important to learn point of care ultrasound. Uh, and you don't have to get very advanced uh, to start with. You know, we're talking about really advanced things. Or we're talking about measuring uh, surrogates of stroke volume. But even just a gross estimate of the LVN RV systolic function uh, is is useful. And if you've done enough echoes, um, even just bedside echoes, you can get an impression of what's normal and what's not. The presence of a pericardial effusion, even if you don't know all the signs to evaluate for tamponade, can still be useful because it will modify your differential diagnosis. Um, IBC uh, ultrasound can be useful to estimate the right atrial pressure. So um, that's another thing that that uh, I use, again, because I'm trying to recreate these shock tables that I talked about. Uh, and then finally, you know, if you think PE might be present, it's very easy to look for DVTs. If you've ever looked uh, at a patient's uh, femoral uh, vein to look for uh, a site to put in the central line, you can look for a DVT there too. It's pretty simple. There are much more advanced things that we can do with ultrasound. Uh, we already mentioned cardiac output assessment. There are actually some ways to try to assess the left atrial pressure as well. It's a little bit more advanced and some of the... Um, uh, assumptions may not hold in a sick patient. Um, and then there's some other signs that we can look at to see if there's signs of what we call venous congestion or fluid overload that's uh, being reflected in the venous system. Um, so that's that's an overview of the hemodynamic side of things. But then if you have the if you have the ultrasound in your hand and you think dif- uh, infection is high in your differential, you should start looking for drainable and uh, collections, pleural space, pericardial space, peritoneal or skin and soft tissue with abscess. Um, and you can progress to the point where you can start to look at the gallbladder and uh, try to understand if that might be a, a cause uh, for infection. So it's a uh, point of care ultrasound is really an extension of the physical exam, but then you get very focused on the questions you ask of it, depending on what you find along the way. That's fantastic. Uh, Dr. Shubai, are there any uh, good data to back up the use of focus in uh, shock? Great question. Uh, there's a lot of studies in the uh, emergency medicine literature uh, about uh, point of care ultrasound changing the the diagnosis uh, from the initial uh, you know presumed diagnosis and uh, it doing that more rapidly than other diagnostic modalities. So if you have a point of care ultrasound, you'll save time to let's say diagnose a pneumonia versus waiting for a, 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 an X-ray or a CT scan or things like that. So time to diagnosis is something that it's reasonably well established. There's a, a benefit to point of care ultrasound. In terms of improving patient outcomes, that data does really does not exist. And the the issue here is, well, most of the, the issue in the first place is this question has not really been asked in ways that would uh, allow you to answer that question. Uh, but the other thing is, remember that you'd be asking a randomized control trial to assess the value of a diagnostic test. And remember, diagnostic tests in and of themselves cannot change outcomes. So what I worry about is if we study... Uh, POCUS the same way we studied pulmonary artery catheters, then they'll fall out of favor because people say they don't change outcomes. The only way of knowing a diagnosis can change the outcome is if you apply an intervention that improves mortality. 
So it's an intermediate step in the process of getting to a, an intervention that can uh, prevent mortality. So if you do an ultrasound and you find the patient's got a raging pneumonia and you start them on antibiotics immediately, um, that would be that would be something that could potentially be life-saving versus if you ultrasound the same patient's lungs and you determine this doesn't look so much like pneumonia, it looks like cardiogenic pulmonary edema, and you put that patient on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, that's somebody whose outcomes you could change. But you could see it would be difficult to study things that way. Yeah, um, thank you for that masterclass on POCUS. I just want to bring us back to our case and I'll briefly summarize it again. We have a 70-year-old female who was admitted for altered mental status with a past medical history of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and stage renal disease getting dialysis via a tunnel dialysis catheter and a history of a DVT on anticoagulation who is we've determined so far is in shock. Our exam so far has showed us that she has cool extremities, prolonged cap refill time, and a central venous oxygen saturation of 72 on further assessment, the CVP that was transduced from the tunnel dialysis catheter showed us a estimated CVP of 3. On focus, the IVC was small and collapsible, and the LVOT-VTI was 20. There was no pericardial effusion, the LV function was moderately reduced, and there was normal RV function. They also did a lung ultrasound that showed no pathological beelines. So I'm going to try and apply your systematic approach above to this case. The tone of our patient is mixed, I would say, given that they are cool to touch but have a low diastolic pressure, low diastolic blood pressure. The patient's filling is also low as evidenced by the CVP of two transduced off the tunnel dialysis catheter. And our flow seems to be elevated given a normal central venous oxygen saturation and LVOT-VTI. To me, from all of this information, it seems that the predominant etiology of this shock is vasoplegic and likely septic given her um, prior medical history. However, there seem to be some mixed signs with the tone, you know, given that she's cool to touch. How would you, what do you think of this? First of all, I think that's a fantastic assessment. Uh, and if I could ask, if, if every resident and fellow did an assessment to that level, I would, I could probably just go to sleep. Uh, that was fantastic. Um, in terms of dealing with this, you know, data that seems discordant. So you've got a patient that's cool to touch and they have a low diastolic blood pressure. So you're kind of not sure where the SVR is. I'll tell you, SVR as a concept is, is extremely complex and there's a lot of confounding factors. Very difficult to say. So I think this is an instance where you say, I have one data point that doesn't quite fit. Um, then I'm going to just honor the rest of the data that I have. So I have low filling pressures, which what I think is probably an okay car cardiac output. It's at least in the normal range. This oxyhemoglobin uh, from the central line and the LBOT-VTI suggests at least a normal cardiac output. So for those listening at home, a normal LBOT-VTI would be between 18 and 22 centimeters. This patient had 20, so kind of dead in the middle. Remember, a normal cardiac output doesn't tell me that it's adequate. Um, so there's some a little bit more work to do here. Um, I think one thing to think about is, uh, as we mentioned already, not focusing on too much on one data point. But the other thing is, um, there are some imperfections to the way that automated cuffs measure pressures. Uh, and this is important to know. And every time I ask this on rounds, people are surprised to hear it. Uh, but it turns out that non-invasive blood pressure cuffs actually measure the mean arterial pressure. And then they uh, derive from a proprietary algorithm uh, the systolic and the diastolic pressures. So those are not necessarily, quote unquote, the true pressures. And those values become more skewed as the blood pressure gets lower. So especially as the systolic pressure gets lower than 90 and then those numbers get very get much less accurate 
Um, the math may still be accurate, but the systolic and diastolic are, are again, derived values. Um, but overall, I'm kind of getting the impression that this patient is moving in a direction or is, uh, you know, firmly in the, in the, the place of uh, a distributive picture. I think one thing that we really learned from this cardiac output assessment and the low filling pressures is that cardiogenic shock is, is not very likely in this case. I would say it's relatively, it's, it's reasonably excluded because um, a lot of times people will anchor on that 30% EF and, uh, and nothing else. Yeah. Uh, to switch gears a little bit from our diagnostic approach, I would just want to touch briefly upon a therapeutic approach. If she were to become hypotensive, do you think epinephrine would be a better choice of vasopressor than norepinephrine? Good question. So I think the, the key to that question is, do I think this patient needs more uh, beta-1 stimulation for, for the sake of inotropy or cardiac output? Um, that's, that's the framing that I'm, I'm using when I, I give my answer. In the first place, I think I want to step back and uh, think about what I would do uh, in the first place. So I, I think in most cases, I would start with norepinephrine. In, in, in the vast majority of cases of shock, I would start with norepinephrine. Cardiogenic shock and, and, and vasodilatory shock for sure. And in and, and some, some other cases of shock as well. Uh, it, I think in this patient, what I'm thinking of, you know, we don't use CVP to make decisions about to give people fluid. Contextually, this is a relatively low central venous pressure for somebody with a significant cardiomyopathy, and they have signs of perfusion crisis with an abnormal cap refill. So I think this is somebody that's reasonable to assess fluid responsiveness on. Uh, it doesn't mean that you should use CBP to say give somebody fluid, but there are some advanced testing that we can do within the critical care environment to actually assess whether giving somebody fluid is likely to raise their cardiac output. Because that would be the the parameter of interest here, whether we're using epinephrine or whether we're trying to use uh, increased preload to do that. Um, you know, the, the other thing is, uh, what is the real blood pressure, right? So I have a patient who is, uh, what sounds like a marginally appropriate mean arterial pressure and they're, but, but they're showing signs of hypoperfusion. So there's two possibilities. One is this blood pressure cuff is not accurate. So if I think this patient is sick enough and I'm uncertain about it, this might be time for invasive arterial blood pressure monitoring, um, it, because that might clarify that problem. The other possibility is if this patient has chronic hypertension on multiple agents, this blood pressure, this map of 65, which we assume is okay, may be too low for this patient. So it might be a reasonable patient to do a trial of vasopressors on for a higher map. Um, I can't tell you what map to choose because there's no hard data on that. Um, generally, we will probably go somewhere around 75 or 80. Again, if I'm doing something like that, I should probably at least confirm that the blood pressure I have is actually what it is. Now to get firmly into the question of where, where does, what is the role of epinephrine in this case? You know, it's uh, inotropes in septic shock have been shown reasonably consistently to worsen outcomes. And um, that's mostly observational data. So what that says is probably sicker patients get inotropes and they were going to do more, they were going to do worse anyway. There is also some observational data to suggest that if you place a patient with septic shock and a cardiomyopathy on an inotrope, that uh, if their cardiac output goes up, they're, uh, they actually may improve um, and th their, their outcomes may actually may, uh, may be better, but we don't have randomized controlled trial data to suggest that. So that's just kind of a, a physiologic uh, reasoning step. So my, my firm answer for you is uh, the decision for epinephrine or not depends on the why for it. If the answer is because the patient has a pre-existing cardiomyopathy, the answer is no. Um, in fact, you could make things worse because remember, 
this patient, you know, remember, if you have a patient with heart failure associated cardiogenic shock, a lot of the time the things we do with those patients is reduce their afterload and adding epinephrine certainly will not do that. Um, so in fact, this could actually worsen the outcomes. Um, however, if you have assessed this patient, you say the cardiac output is inadequate as evidenced by whatever parameter you think is appropriate, um, then you could try an empiric uh, inotrope to see if things uh, improve. However, remember, no matter what you do, you have to reassess the patient. So a lot of times we uh, kind of put patients in autopilot. We say, here's your antibiotics, here's your norepi, um, call me when you need to add a second presser, um, which is a whole other topic. Uh, but remember, after you do something, you should come back and reassess the patient. And then if you're in the ICU, you should probably do that within an hour or two. Don't wait till the next day. Don't wait till, um, you know, 12 hours from now. And just remember that your goal is not blood pressure. Your goal is perfusion. So whatever you need to do to the patient to restore the perfusion is the goal. And you have to also assess for adverse effects of your therapy. If you gave fluid, did, it, did you create fluid overload? That's symptomatic. If you gave epinephrine, did you cause, uh, you know, any other adverse signs or arrhythmias or things like that? There's just a, a, a whole wealth of information that needs to be considered whenever you apply a treatment because everything we do is essentially empiric. So everything is a, a test and reassess response. Dr. Shuba, that was an amazing discussion and analysis based on the case. As a fellow medical educator, what are your key takeaways for all the lifelong learners that are listening? Most importantly, shock and hypotension are not synonymous. They may often overlap, but one can be present without the other. And that's why an assessment of perfusion by using something like the bus approach, brain, urine, and skin is uh, a starting point for that. Secondly, it's important to use a systematic approach for diagnosis and treatment of shock every time. You don't want to make assumptions based on incomplete data. It's 2023, and I think we need to expand uh, our penetration of point of care ultrasound throughout patient uh, throughout clinicians who take care of patients in the hospital uh, whether that's in the emergency department the regular nursing floor or the ICU um, it's difficult to take care of patients with shock uh, even to know the diagnosis and to no response to therapy without it uh, and then finally recognize the tools that are available to you based on your local resources as well as the characteristics of the patient not every single patient needs a point of care ultrasound and every, not every patient needs a pulmonary artery catheter, but some of them need one of those and some of them need both of those. So it's all about fitting your expertise and what's available uh, locally to you to the patient in front of you. This leads us to the end of this episode of the Medicine Grand Rounders podcast. On behalf of the team, thank you to our senior clinical expert, Dr. Shuba, for your expertise, wisdom, and insight. Additionally, we want to sincerely thank our resident content expert, Dr. Ganerawal, who developed and vetted the content for today's episode. And always thank you to our co-host, Dr. Arjun Chatterjee. Team, I certainly enjoyed the review and imagine that many of our listeners will find the information essential to their practice. Thank you also to the Cleveland Clinic Education Institute for the educational support of this project. Until next time, please enjoy this and future podcasts during your next Medicine Grand Rounders.